Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for a time to open your word and hear from you. I pray that you would convey to all of us the truth of your word. Pray that the words that I speak wouldn't simply be just words. That you would, through the work of your Holy Spirit, change all of our hearts. Help us not only to understand the text conceptually, but to understand it with our heart. That it would actually change the way we live and move. That it would be impacted by your word. That when we leave here, we'll leave different because we've encountered the God of the Bible. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles, if you have them, to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew 4, 12 to 25 is where we're going to be. Matthew 4, 12 to 25. Uh, June 6th, 2012. I remember that day like it was yesterday. The reason I remember that day like it was yesterday was the day that my first child was born. Andrea called me from the hospital. I was at work. And she had gone in for a routine checkup at her doctor's appointment. Doctor didn't like what he had seen, and so he or what she had seen, and so she sent her to the hospital. And she called me from the hospital and she said, "You've got to leave work. You've got to come here now." And she gave me just some brief details. And so I left work and I, I came over to the hospital. And we, hadn't, we weren't expecting Grayson for another six weeks. And so it was a little bit of a surprise to us that we're here in this hospital room. And we're not sure exactly what's going to happen. And the doctor walks in and she says, uh, it's safer for him to be on the outside than on the inside. So we're going to have to take this child now. And actually, the first thing that she said to me is, are you ready to be a father? And I'm like, well, I've been planning on being a father for the last, I don't know, 32 weeks now. And so, yeah. And she's like, I mean, in the next five minutes, are you ready for this to happen? And so we kind of gather ourselves together. We realize the gravity of this situation. And so sure enough, they rush Andrea into the OR. I'm standing by her bedside. I'm decked head to toe in, in scrubs. And within one hour from having left work, I'm holding in my arms a three-pound, 11-ounce baby boy. I remember as they pulled him out, he was screaming and covered in goo. <laughs> and he's screaming, and they're weighing him, and they're cleaning him up, and he's still crying, and to this day, still doesn't like being messed with. And they brought him over to me and they put him in my arms and immediately he went silent. I was absolutely breathless as I was sitting there holding this child, thinking that just an hour ago I was at work like everything was normal. And now an hour later, I am responsible for the upbringing of this human in my arms. 
It was a moment that changed everything about the way I even thought about life that hadn't before that, that moment. Now, you may not be a parent, but even if you're not, all of us can, if we've lived long enough, can empathize with those moments in our lives. There's several of them throughout our lives that change everything about the way we think about life. It may be graduation, or it may be even just getting married. It may be um, career change. It may be moving from one place to another. Or it might even be tragic things. The death of a loved one, or death of a family member. Cancer, various things like that. Whatever it is, there are tons of things in our lives that we can relate to, that happen to us, and in a moment, in an instance, change everything about the way we even think about life. In our, our text this morning, Jesus is now taking the center stage of this narrative. He's coming forward, and what's going to be on display for us in the rest of the book of Matthew is Jesus' full-time ministry. And it's this moment in the book that everything changes Everything gets a lot more serious. This passage will help set us up for the rest of the book as we think about what it really means to be disciples of Christ. How our lives should change in being disciples of Christ. Let's look at our passage this morning, Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 to 25. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began preaching, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two, brother, two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. In the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout Galilee, all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people so that his fame spread throughout all Syria. And they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. So we're entering into a new section in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew is really done introducing us to just the character of Jesus. He's done that over the last three chapters, really three and a half chapters. He's introduced us to who Jesus is. And there's been a few things that he said to us in that introduction of Jesus, making the claim, this is who Jesus is. The first thing is, he is the true king of the Jewish people. He establishes that at the very beginning, that he's of the line of David, 
that he's suitable to sit on David's throne, and that he's a descendant of Abraham, meaning that he is the promised seed that's coming to crush the head of the serpent. He is the king not only of the Jews, but he is the king of the entire world. He's told us that in the first three chapters. He also tells us that Jesus is Emmanuel. Jesus is is God with us. The angel tells Joseph this at the end of chapter 1, you may remember. And then we see time and time again throughout that introduction where God intervenes in the story, taking control of events that would take place and moves Jesus out of harm's way. And you can see there's something different about this baby. God is intervening in human history to preserve the life of this child. He is God with us. He is literally God in the flesh. He is Emmanuel. So Matthew also tells us that Jesus is the new Israel. What he means by that is that Jesus is tracing the steps of ancient Israel as as they come out of Egypt. Just as Israel is called God's own son, so Jesus is literally God's own son. As Israel is called out of Egypt, so Jesus, Matthew tells us, is called out of Egypt. Both of which pass through the waters, Israel through the Red Sea, Jesus through baptism. And then both are sent out into the wilderness, the Israel for 40 years and Jesus for 40 days. The difference is that Jesus is doing it without sin. Jesus is living the righteous life that you and I never could, so that on the cross, God may give to us the gift of Christ's righteousness, so that it's in Him we stand. In exchange for our sin. Jesus is the new Israel. But now we're moving into a new section in Matthew. Out out of the introduction. Now that we've understood that this Jesus is king, what then does a king bring with him? A kingdom, of course. So now what we're looking at is Jesus introducing us to the kingdom that he's bringing. The Jewish people spent 40 years in the wilderness wandering around. And what were they charged to do after they got through with their trip around the desert? They were to come into the promised land and they were to bring with them the rule and reign of God into the promised land, driving out all the enemies. Israel failed. Jesus, the new Israel, is not going to fail as he marches into the promised land with the kingdom of God, with God's rule and his reign. But as we'll see in this passage, he is successfully driving out all things that stand in his way. Nothing can hold up under the weight of the kingdom of heaven. So as we look at this passage, there are three clear divisions in the text. You probably even see in your Bible three headings above each of the sections that we we read today. But I think they're all summed up in really one point that Matthew's making about Jesus' mission. The first thing that I think he's saying about Jesus' mission mission, is that the kingdom has dawned because the king is here to save. The kingdom has dawned because the king, Jesus, is here to save. Remember, John the Baptist is arrested. Right at the beginning of this passage, John is arrested. And we don't learn about all the details of John's arrest until Matthew chapter 14. 
So when we get to Matthew chapter 14, we'll be looking back at what happened to John when he was arrested. But that's not the concern right now. John is arrested, and Herod Antipas, who is the son of Herod the Great, is the one that arrested him. Now, you remember Herod the Great is the Herod at the very beginning of the book of Matthew that had the confrontation with Jesus that Joseph had taken him to Egypt for, that whole scene that takes place right there in, uh, in chapter 2. But this is Herod the Great's son, the Tetrarch, all right? He is reigning over the regions of Galilee and Perea. Perea is just to the east of the Jordan River, where John is baptizing, and presumably where Jesus has gone out into the wilderness to be tested. So Herod Antipas arrests John, who is in his area. And then Jesus moves to Nazareth, which is also in Herod Antipas's area. So it's as if there's a subtle reminder that the authorities are not going to be able to silence the news of the kingdom. Herod sees the news of the kingdom happening out in his area of Perea, so he squashes it by arresting John. And what happens? Jesus rises up in another area of his kingdom and begins proclaiming the same message. Remember, just a few chapters earlier, his father tried to kill Jesus, put him to death, and we see that that didn't work either. He couldn't stop the good news, and his son can't stop it now. It is going on because it is of the plan of God. So Jesus moves into Nazareth, which is in the Jewish territory of Zebulun. And then he moves to another area of Capernaum, where he takes up his home, home base, which is in the Jewish area of Naphtali. So remember the children of Israel move into the promised land and the land is divided amongst all of the tribes of the sons of, of Israel. And so Matthew refers to those. Those have long since passed because the Romans have come in and are ruling now. But his point is that Naphtali and Zebulun are the areas where Jesus took up his, re resi uh, his residency and his ministry. And he comes in proclaiming the same message that John was proclaiming. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So it appears that the kingdom of this world is powerless to stop this message. And we see in the book of Acts, don't we, that as the church is told, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. How is it that they get to the ends of the earth? Through persecution. The church is smacked in Jerusalem with persecution. And what happens? The people flee, they run, and what happens to the message? It begins to spread. So it appears that the kingdom that Jesus is bringing is going to spread by the same way. Here is the persecution of John, and the message goes forth into the rest of the world. So Matthew tells us all of this was to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah. Look there in verse 15. He says, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them light has dawned. So in verse 15, he's, he's noting that Zebulun and Naphtali is where Jesus begins his ministry, and, the, and then these, these two areas are right next to each other. They're sitting right on the Sea of Galilee. 
And so the fact that Jesus is settling here and beginning his ministry is evidence that the prophecy of Isaiah is coming true. That this is truly Jesus coming to bring this kingdom. Now, the land of Zebulun and Naphtali are out in the middle of nowhere. They're out in the sticks, so to speak. Okay, They're far away from all the religious centers that Jews would hold dear. Far north of Judah where Jerusalem is. So they are in the remotest parts of the world. And yet this is where God chooses to begin the ministry of His Son. These are the first people to see the light of the kingdom dawning. But what is the light they see? The Messiah coming and preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The king has entered the land and he has come to save. The kingdom has dawned and the central message, this is the beauty of what Jesus is preaching. The center of the message that Jesus is preaching is squarely at what separates man from God. In other words, there is light dawning. And what is that light doing? It's exposing sin. It's shedding light on darkness. It's shedding light on sin. You can be saved, but listen, sin is the issue that we need to deal with. You know, it's amazing. Jesus doesn't come in preaching ten ways to have a better marriage. That's not what he leads with. If you go to any church conference today, that's that's almost what they tell you. There's got to be some attraction or people won't hear. That's not what Jesus leads with. He leads with repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In fact, look at verse 17. It tells him, it tells us from that time Jesus began to preach. From, From that time. Meaning this wasn't just how he started his ministry. It's everywhere he went. This is the content that undergirded what he would preach. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus was more or less an itinerant preacher. He would go around preaching some of the same messages in area after area. And he was preaching this message everywhere he went. Repent of sin. Yet flash forward 2,000 years later, and it seems what fills the airwaves, the bookshelves of our Christian bookstores, TV screens, pulpits across America, is here's how you can have your best life now, just by reading your Bible and go to church. Now, I think it's true that a relationship with Christ will usher you into a better marriage. But it's not because there's some secret locked away in the Greek or Hebrew that only if you knew how this verse was translated, then wow, it would revolutionize your marriage and everything would change. No. It's because as you go closer to Christ, you're being confronted with your own sin. And it's beginning to be exposed. 
And the closer you go to grow to Christ, the more you realize you need to grow closer to Christ. So what are you left to do than to turn to the other um, imperfect person that you live with, that you live with, and extend your spouse the same grace and mercy that you're receiving in Christ? What happens is you become not just a grace receiver, but a grace giver. It becomes necessary to turn the forgiveness that you're receiving in Christ to them. So as the two grow closer to Christ in this way, exposing the darkness of sin, the two grow closer to each other. But make no mistake, the message of Jesus, that Jesus is preaching is very clear. You are not in the kingdom of heaven if you are not repenting of sin. In other words, if you continue on living in sin, quite happily, not confessing it, not turning away from it, but living in it, you are not in the kingdom of heaven. And it's not that citizens of the kingdom of heaven don't sin. Of course we do. There may be even times of rebellion and and backsliding, but what you can see in a Christian's life over the course of their life is that it bends towards repentance. So that might be comfort to you. If you've been thinking to yourself, am I really a Christian because of the sin that I'm struggling with? You'll see that those sins over time that he's made evident to you, he continues to bend you back towards repentance. And the ones that you were struggling with 10 years ago might not be the ones that you're struggling with now. You've picked up whole new ones. But over time, it bends towards repentance. However, it may be uncomfortable for you if you are thinking to yourself, I'm seeing the sins that are in my life and I have no desire to repent of them. I'm desiring to continue to go on living in these kinds of sins unrepentantly, quite happily then I need to tell you, wake up. That's not the kingdom of heaven that you're in. The second point Matthew makes to introduce us to the kingdom of heaven is that to enter the kingdom, you must leave everything. To enter the kingdom, you must leave everything. Look at verse 18. He says, While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. So the disciples leave everything to follow this Messiah who has, who has called them. Now Jesus walks by the sea, he sees two brothers casting their nets out into the sea, and he calls them and they follow him. Like physically, they get up, they leave everything that they have, and they walk after him, they follow him. We see that happens again the very next time. He walks by the Sea of Galilee. He sees two more brothers that are fishing with their father this time, James and John. He calls to them. They leave everything, including old dad, to mend the nets over there by himself. They follow Jesus, leaving everything behind. Now, it's possible that they had known of this guy already. He's in Capernaum. They, it's possible that they knew of some of the things that he's doing he's, that, that Matthew just doesn't tell us about. It's possible that 
there was more of a conversation that Matthew doesn't tell us about. Maybe there was a dialogue back and forth. What will this following look like? What, what will you want me to do? What is my job description? Maybe there's some of that going on. Or maybe they just saw him and miraculously they felt compelled to follow him. We're not told any of those details. The important part that Matthew is pointing to is that they, in order to become Jesus' disciples, they had to leave every single thing and follow after him, physically get up and leave. And it's typically when you get to scenes like this in the Bible that the pastor is supposed to turn to the audience and he's supposed to say, what about you? Would you leave everything if Jesus knocked on your door and said, hey you, I want you to physically get up and walk with me and follow me. And we get caught in this theoretical trap wondering if Jesus were to knock on my door or were he to come by my office at work and say, get up and follow me, would I be able to follow him without so much as a goodbye to my family? Even if deep down we think the answer is no, we say, yeah, sure I would. Because the chances are remote that Jesus will actually knock on your door and say physically, get up and walk after me. But I think it's really asking the wrong question. Now, it's true that there are some for whom following Christ will mean they physically have to walk away from family or job. That's true. I mean, imagine a person whose entire family is Muslim, who comes to Christ. Doing so will mean that he or she is ostracized from the rest of his or her family. I was in a group that shared a, the gospel with a Tibetan Buddhist in China. And he said to us, my whole family is Buddhist. And if I follow Christ, they're going to get rid of me entirely. They may even kill me. So before I do this, I need to count the cost. Those were literally his words. He didn't grow up in church. Those were literally his words. I need to count the cost. Imagine a scenario, though, where a, a person that's in some form of adult entertainment comes to Christ. It happens. They can't continue on in their profession and still be pursuing holiness. They literally would have to leave their job. Imagine a businessman who comes to Christ, who has previously lined his pockets with all kinds of immorality of business, shady business dealings. He would literally have to get up and leave his work and follow Christ. It may literally mean he has to quit what he's doing and follow Christ. It's not just immorality, though. Think about the missionaries that we support. Think about Justin and Chandra Martin, who are planning a church in Portland, Oregon. We support them. They have literally left home, and they have moved to Portland to be church planters. For them, that's what it means to follow Christ. They physically have to leave. But for the vast majority of us, the rest of us in this room, pretty much, we're going to be in Tuscaloosa until we die. We're going to be here for a long time. So most of us work our 8 to 5s, our Monday through Fridays, in jobs that don't compromise our integrity. The, the point is that it's not about location. Following Christ is not about having to sell everything that you own right here and right now and live under a bridge somewhere. That's not exactly what he's talking about. It's a question of obedience. 
Think about this for a minute. Judas Iscariot was not a follower of Christ. Judas Iscariot was not a follower of Christ. Now, he had the perfect location. When Jesus called, presumably, we're not told about his exact calling, but when Jesus called, we presume that he got up and he followed after him. And yet he was not a follower of Christ. In a similar way, we can sit in the pews or we can even stand behind the pulpits. We can put on the Christian regalia and we can maybe even post a couple of times on Facebook a couple of good scripture verses. We can do all of those things that would typically in our society qualify somebody to follow Christ and yet in our private time we go on sinning or we justify our sinning all the way. Never coming to repentance. The question is not, if Jesus knocked on my door, would I leave everything? The question is, Jesus has already knocked on your door. Are you still sitting on the couch? That's the question that we need to be asking ourselves. Am I still sitting on the couch when he has very clearly called me to follow him? When was that moment in your life where you saw a radical change? Where was that moment in your life where you turned completely? Where you realized that I am a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. I'm not a citizen of this world. When was that moment that you realized my values have now radically changed from what they were? I don't value the same things that I valued before. The priorities that I have in my own life have now been transformed. I'm not talking about just the moment when you came down front or when you got into the baptistry. I'm not talking about those kinds of things. For some of us, that's the same, that's, that time is one and the same. For many, it's a different time. For many, it happened long after you got in the baptistry. When was that time? We have people in our churches today who say as parents... We have no idea how to raise our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. I, I got no idea how to do it. I don't know, I don't know how to accurately, actually disciple my children. I don't know how to raise them and, and teach them the things of Christ. It just, that, that escapes me. I'm not good at it. Maybe I don't, whatever the excuses are. But amazingly, particularly in this city, most of those children are going to grow up to be Alabama Crimson Tide fans. Isn't that amazing? How does that happen? Well, they're going to have a script day on their onesie. On their bottle. When they turn it up, they're going to see Nick Saban's face. Right there. It's going to be everywhere. The first hat that they own is not going to have an AU on it. Nope. It's not going to be orange. It's going to be crimson. It's going to have an A on it. It's going to be oozing out of the pores of the adults in the house how to be an Alabama Crimson Tide fan. This is what we do. But when it comes to following Christ, we pretend like we have no idea how to give that to our children. But for a person who's had that radical change in their life, you don't have to tell them. It oozes out of their pores. They know how to convey it to their children. 
that get it, that following Christ means everything else takes a back seat. That this is the most important thing that I can give to my children. If I give them nothing else, this is the most important thing that I can give to them. It doesn't mean that I can't watch football games. I can and I will. But it does mean that I have to do everything in my power to make sure my children understand what place it's in, in our lives. It doesn't mean I can't grow my kids up in participating in athletics. I can and I might. But sports didn't get up from the dead on Sunday morning. Jesus did. And so I'm going to convey to them with my attendance, with my being here, that it matters to me. That nothing else takes precedence over my worship of the resurrected Christ. I'm going to commit to that with everything that I do. They might grow up to reject Christ. It's no guarantee that your kids are going to be a Christian just because you do those things. They might grow up and reject Christ. But at least they'll know that following Christ means I have to give up everything. Now you may say, well, I believe he died on the cross and I believe he, he rose again from the dead. But friend, if that doesn't translate into radical obedience of Christ then you don't really believe it. If I came to you and I said, a tornado is about to hit your house, and if you believed me, would you go back on your couch and watch your TV? No. You would do something about it. You'd grab a mattress, you'd get in the hallways, you'd get in the you know, non-outside windows, or not by outside windows, you'd put the mattress over your head in the bathtub or whatever. There would be obedience. There would be something that changes about your life because you believed it. And that's what the Bible tells us about actually following Christ and actually believing that He is the Messiah. That He really did resurrect from the dead and that He's calling us to follow Him. There's radical obedience that follows after that. I can't just believe it in my mind and not actually do anything about it. It doesn't make any sense. To enter the kingdom, you must leave everything. That includes your old life of sin. Last, the news of the kingdom will destroy the opposition. The news of the kingdom will destroy the opposition. Look at verse 23 to 25. And he went through all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem, Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. There's a real tangible and immediate uh, impact that the kingdom has on the world. Uh, Jesus is uh, proclaiming here, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And proof that is at hand is the affliction, the diseases, the demonic activity that he mentions here, the paralysis, the sickness are all subject to this kingdom. All of them fall prey to this kingdom. Now, you can see why Jesus' fame spreads. Obviously, he's healing all of these people, so they're gathering around him. In verse 24, his fame spreads to Syria, which would be north of Galilee. 
And then in 25, it goes to the Decapolis, and, and then, which is to the south and to the east, um, mostly. And then you have Ju- Jerusalem and Judea, which is primarily to the south and a little bit to the west. Then you have uh, beyond the Jordan, which is to the east. So his fame spread to the north and then to the west and then to the south and then to the east. People all over are gathering around to see the proclamation of this kingdom and its impact. But remember back in chapter 3 where John comes and he's proclaiming this same message. He says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And we said back there that there's proof that the kingdom of heaven really is at hand. There's really two reactions that the crowd gives. When he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, what happens to the Jewish people? They get in the river and they repent of their sins. That's one reaction. They've been without a prophet for 400 years. And the reaction to the news of the kingdom being here is they get in the water and they're baptized. And then there's a snarky reaction from the people that are on the banks of the river that don't want to get in. So there's people that, uh, the people of God, they comply with God's will and they repent. And then there are people that reject it. But here we have the Messiah coming in. And there's proof that what he's bringing is also really true. That he's really bringing God's saving reign. One, disciples leave everything they have and they follow him. And two, disease, affliction, demon oppression, paralysis, all take off running. That's how you know it's true. That he's healing the sick and he's casting out demons. There's proof right there to back up Jesus' claims that he is the Messiah and he's bringing the kingdom. But it also tells us something about the nature of God's reign. That it's not just that Jesus is coming to free us from sin. That is great in and of itself. That is an amazing gift. It's not just that Jesus' righteousness is going to be given or imputed to us, credited to our account. It's not just that. That's a gift in and of itself. It's also that Jesus is demonstrating God's power over all affliction. Over everything. There's nothing that can stand in his presence without his permission. That's amazing. That's an amazing thought. And this is just a stated summary here right before we get into the Sermon on the Mount. But it's, this, is, this will be reiterated throughout the gospel. The good news of the kingdom has power over all affliction. The healing of the afflictions and the diseases that we see in this text. You have to keep this in mind. They are a sign of of the things to come. That's not what we're anticipating. Those are a sign that Jesus has the power to deliver what we hope for. This is simply a sign. The paralytic man, he could rise and walk. But what happened 40, 50 years maybe later? Is he still alive today? Well, no, he died. The healing that Jesus is giving in this scene is simply an indicator of what he has the power to do, what Jesus is promising to those who follow him. Listen very close. Is resurrection from the dead. That is what Jesus is promising. That is what he's showing signs that he has the power to deliver now. 
resurrection from the dead, a new heavens and a new earth where sin and sickness and death and cancer and evil of all kinds will be eradicated once and for all. And whether we live now with disease after disease after disease, constantly in and out of the hospital, or whether we live to 120 years, what we're desiring is that resurrection from the dead. And Jesus' ministry is proof that he has the power to deliver us from all opposition. Not just demonic. Not just a healing from cancer. But from death itself. There are two groups of people in this room. There's those that need Jesus and those that already have him. The only two groups. In fact, not just in this room, in this world. There are only two groups of people. Those that need Jesus and those that already have him. Now, for those that need him, understand that following Christ means that everything else takes a back seat. That when you decide to come to Christ, there is a leaving of your old life behind. That the life of sin has to be put, not just in the back seat, needs to be shot and thrown in the river. It's over. It's done away with. And what that also means is that coming to Christ means confronting your sin, confessing to Him what your sin is, and turning from it and leaving that lifestyle. That's what that means. The symbolism in the baptistry is just that. We send you under the water, a symbol of a, like a violent death, a drowning of the old life and a resurrection to new life with Christ. That's the symbol that's present there. Those that already have Christ. Resurrection Sunday is coming up in just a few weeks. Where we'll take a moment to recognize the greatest event in human history. The day that Jesus got up from the dead. That right there is the ultimate sign that he has the power to deliver life everlasting. What we see when we see Christ get up from the dead is what we're anticipating for ourselves. That we too will go into the grave and yet Jesus will come back and call us up out of the grave and renew our bodies. New heavens and new earth is what we're anticipating. So really, this is a call for you to persevere. There's plenty in this room who are suffering right now, who have been taken through the ringer. Whether it's them personally, their children, many other people around them, whatever it is that you're going through, the call is perseverance. To not give up. To understand that the person that you're following, that has called you, that has beckoned you out of darkness and into light, that is calling you through this trial, is worth following. That he has the ability, when it's all said and done, to call you up from the grave where there will be no more suffering, where there will be no more sin, and where there will be no more evil. We will be like him, or we'll see him as he is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
how grateful we are for what you have done for us. The fact that you have sent your son to provide a substitute for us, that your wrath could be poured out on him and not us. Lord, that you have given to us your spirit, that we can understand it, that we can turn to you and identify sins in our life and confess those and repent from them. Lord, without you and without you doing that, we would have nothing. How grateful we are for that. Lord, I pray that you would work on our hearts, the ones in this room right at this very moment. That, Lord, we would come clean. That we would turn over to you the sin and the darkness and everything that's in our hearts right now. That your Holy Spirit would shed light on that darkness and that we would just confess it. Lord, allow us to come clean. Allow us to live a life of righteousness following. Give to us the grace it takes to move out into the world and proclaim this gospel to others that are lost and dying. Help this truth to set in on our hearts that we not pursue the things of darkness any longer. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.